Welcome to the Fearless Vampire Podcast. I'm on a heartfelt mission through the art of conversation and storytelling to inspire women to pursue their creative entrepreneurial journey with reckless abandon. I'm your host, Taylor, a six-figure photographer and business coach based in Colorado. I'm a right-brain mompreneur to two toddler boys, devoted deep conversation holder, and your personal alpaca cuddle liaison. My hope is that you leave our time together feeling empowered and energized to build your dream life. Learn more at fearlessvampire.com. All right, welcome back to the Fearless Vampire podcast. You guys are in for such a treat today as we have our very first male on the show today. Nathan, (laughs) (laughs) thank you, Nathan, so much for being here. Oh, I'm absolutely glad to be here. And I think, Taylor, I told you that I'm like 17% woman. Um, yes. <laughs> I said it tongue-in-cheek, of course, but I'm I'm glad to be a first, and I hope I can add some value to your audience as well. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. So Nathan Holritz is the CEO of the amazing company, Photographers Edit. I'm sure you all have heard me talk about it on previous episodes, but I wanted to invite him to be with us today because of what he's doing and giving back in the photography community. And I know for myself, Photographer's Edit has given me my life back. They gave me motherhood opportunities back and have allowed me the freedom to pursue other passions and really learn how to relinquish control in my business. So Nathan, just thank you so much for for being here. Oh, well, that's super generous. At the end of the day, it's cool to be able to create something that's making an impact in people's lives. So the business is about 14 years old now, but to still hear individual comments like the ones that you just made are super fulfilling. And I'm just thankful that we're able to make an impact in that way. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to like get into the story of Photographer's Edit. And I would love, Nathan, if you would just start out by like telling us who you are. I know that you were a wedding photographer at one point. I know you have two kids and I'm sure that that was the driving force to to building this amazing business you have, Photographer's Edit. So please like, give us the history lesson on where your roots are from and how you ended up here as a CEO. Sure. Well, I, I did photograph weddings for about 10 years. I live in the Chattanooga, Tennessee market, relatively small city, and had the opportunity to photograph mainly weddings for about a decade, starting in 2001 or so. And yeah, you're right. During that time, having had two kids pretty young, I wanted a solution to help me with the editing, the post-production work that I had to do after photographing a wedding. I wanted some help with that and largely so that I could have more time with my family. And so creating this editing company was largely out of a personal need. I also saw an opportunity in the industry as well. So it came from a couple of different places, but I wanted more time, more flexibility particularly for the sake of family time. My kids are now 20 and let's see, what are they? 17, 20 and 17. <laughs> it's it's crazy. I, I mean, it, time really does fly. And, and it's been such a learning experience being a parent and a single parent actually for quite a bit of that time. But yeah, a lot of what we do, I think as business owners can easily stem from our relationship, certainly with our kids or just anybody close to us. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny that you mentioned that you were a wedding photographer for 10 years because I'm on my 10th year. Uh, this is my 10th year. And I actually read somewhere that the lifespan, the average lifespan of a wedding photographer is 10 years. Do you feel like, do, like, do you see that in our community from the point of people starting 
their business gets running and then they just get to a point where they're either physically burnt out or emotionally burnt out? Like, does that, does that resonate with you at all? The 10 year lifespan? You know, honestly, I think it varies for a lot of people. Depends on a couple of different things. One, you know, if, if you go into really any business with kind of a, an underlying set of goals that are very big picture, I think it's easier to sustain the life of a business for a longer period of time because you're reaching toward goals that are bigger than just the idea that you are a photographer or you are a writer or you are a boutique owner or whatever the thing is. You're reaching towards something bigger, ideally, mm-hmm. and that can help sustain a business over time. So that's one. I think another thing to consider too, and it, it sounds a little nerdy, but it's actually relevant to anybody who is a business owner, considering workflow, and you alluded to this a little bit with outsourcing editing, creating a workflow for ourselves as business owners that keeps us from burning out over time can also sustain the life of that business. I remember back when I was photographing as many as 30 or even 40 weddings in a year, and that was a lot of work. And yeah. somebody who does that for an extended period of time with a poor workflow in place would easily burn out and certainly even less time than 10 years. So I think the big picture matters. And I think the efficiency of a workflow matters. Those are two pretty important components of a business. Yeah, absolutely. I know for for me, for, for the students that I coach, that is one of the biggest questions that comes up that they want to cover is what does my workflow look like? Because I know for me, I mean, when you're a business owner, you wear 17 to 1700 hats. And yeah. so when you have to do everything start to finish and there is zero room for error, it is exhausting and it's it's very overwhelming. I actually um, just finished reading the book Effortless. And mm. we, we may have talked about this before, but have, yeah. have you read that book by Greg McEwen? I haven't, but it's, it's a really popular book. I've heard a good it's bit about so good. it. <laughs> so I read Essentialism early on in, in my career, which was actually one of the reasons that I hired you guys was because I read that book and I was like, okay, what are the essentials? What do I have to do? What am I good at? And what can I, what can I outsource to some people mm. who, who are in their zone of genius? But then Greg McEwen went on to write Effortless. And in Effortless, he actually touches on workflow and how when you can eliminate the possibility for human error, mm-hmm. everything just goes so much more smoothly. And that to me was just like this huge light bulb went off of like, I already knew I had to automate things, but what else can I automate in my life to just eliminate my human error as a human, as a mom, as an entrepreneur yeah. and doing all the things I know I'm going to make mistakes. And so that's kind of like this great launch pad to, I want to hear about for, for photographers edit, who is your just like dream client when you were building this business aside from yourself? Who were you thinking of as your dream client? Like the people that were going to see you and go, yes, I need that. Well, I think that's even evolved over time. Mm -hmm. And then my perspective as a business owner and how I look at my target market has evolved over time as well. And hopefully for all of us as business owners, we're we're doing just that. And I've I've learned the hard way that when it's intentional or unintentional, if, if I'm stuck in my ways, it's super limiting in my ability to grow certainly as a person, but then as a result, as a business owner as well. So I've learned a lot over time. I, I would say currently, I, I, well, I'll answer your question, I guess, in two different ways. At the outset, I just knew that there was a demand or an opportunity in the industry at the time because there weren't a lot of companies available that offered editing to mm-hmm. professional photographers. And the ones that did exist were expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a wait list. They were complicated. And so 
what I saw as a business owner, I mean, certainly I needed to be able to outsource editing or delegate editing to someone or another company. But then looking at it as an entrepreneurial opportunity, I saw that the industry needed a company to offer the same services or similar services at a lower price point in a much simpler manner, simpler Mm -hmm. user experience, and to be able to do so at scale. And so when I started the company, that was the intention. It wasn't so much about considering a particular segment of the photographic market as much as just thinking about the market at large, portrait photographers, wedding photographers, but looking where there was an opportunity, a niche to be filled or a need to be met. And there were two or three specific needs that we were trying to meet at the outset. Our brand has shifted over time. So now when I think about our target demographic or a target client, I'm thinking about established photographers who have the budget necessary to support the idea of delegation and who are wanting to have a little bit more freedom, a little bit more flexibility in their life. And we may talk about this later, but part of what enables that is, again, what I talked about or I mentioned earlier, which is awareness of the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Photographers who kind of obsess about the little details that realistically don't matter in the scheme of things tend to be more apprehensive about or even just shun the idea altogether of outsourcing their editing work. If you're thinking big picture, then the idea of delegation comes a little bit more naturally. So I'm wanting to work with somebody who is more open-minded in that sense. Right. That's that's so wonderfully said. Because I know for a lot of photographers, when they think of hiring an editor, they think of bringing on an employee almost like this, this one-on-one working together and face-to-face. And to me, that was not appealing. I did not want an employee. I did not want to have mm. to actually communicate with somebody. Yeah. And so your you know, customer experience has been incredible. It's, it's very simple. It's very simple to place in order. Um, what was that like for you, Nathan, going from running you and your show and your photography business to then managing a team of mm. people? And I guess I, I would ask two questions. What was that like? And I know that you're really big on brand position. So I would love mm. to hear about how you how you established that and then hired for it. I, I know that those are a lot of big questions, but I guess first and foremost, what was that transition like for you going from a, a one-man show to running a huge team? Honestly, 14 years later, I'm still making the transition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's seriously. totally fair. I, part of that's just because I'm, I, I have so many shortcomings, and I'm a selfish human being, and and so the idea of thinking outside of myself just didn't come as naturally as it maybe should have, or as quickly as it should have. I've learned a lot, actually, especially even just in the last three or four months or so. And so when it comes to interacting, and I make I can make a book recommendation in that regard, but when it comes yes. to interacting with and managing a team, it, it's been an ongoing learning curve, mm-hmm. and. Man, there's so many different directions we could go with that. Oh, but I'm sure. Yeah, I would I would say it's it's been a 14 year learning curve that I'm sure will continue. As really kind of any relationships that we are engaging in in life, right? We continue mm-hmm. to learn how to interact with that individual based on their their needs and their beliefs, and um, doing that then at scale with a larger team, having to do that with multiple people and different environments and di- different circumstances and contexts, it can be challenging, but it's also a really fun challenge. And I think a shift in mindset on a couple of different levels has really helped me with that. And I'm glad to get into some of that. When you talk about brand position, we launched, as I mentioned, largely to simplify the process in comparison or contrast to other businesses. And brand position for anybody who's listening who isn't aware of the concept is maybe more commonly referred to as a value proposition. Mm -hmm. 
And I think a strong brand position is a unique value proposition. So you look at other businesses that may be offering a similar service. For example, I was a wedding photographer. If I were to launch a business as a wedding photographer now, and I just said, I'm a wedding photographer, I would get lost in the mix of other photographers who are saying they're wedding photographers, right? So I need to come up with a distinct or unique value proposition. I could say that I'm a black and white wedding photographer. I could get even more specific and I could say I'm a black and white wedding photographer for skateboarders. So I have a, a variation on the service and then a target demo that I'm reaching. That's an example of a brand position. So at the time we were competing against editing companies who were expensive and complicated and they mm -hmm. had a wait list. So we needed to simplify, we needed to bring the price point down and we need to be able to scale effectively. And so we, we led with the first brand message really that we led with was classic post-production. Whereas these other solutions were offering this highly customized, but as a result, also expensive editing solutions. Right. We decided to simplify and to focus on a classic style of post-production, which we knew would stand the test of time. I was a wedding mm -hmm. photographer. I knew how trends came and went yep. and styles <laughs> came and went. And so the idea of focusing on what would kind of stand the test of time and would work for a wide or for a large audience made sense at the time. We ended up shifting that brand position from classic to custom, uh, let's see, probably about six or seven years ago, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more, because we saw the industry shift. Um, our primary competitor at the time shifted from a more customized solution to something simpler, cheaper, monthly subscription. And we had clients at Photographer's Edit who were talking about wanting more options. So not only paying attention to what our clients wanted, but also paying attention to what was happening in the industry that was shifting more to a simpler, cheaper model, we went, again, the opposite direction. And that's, again, a good example, I think, of what we should do with brand positioning. We should position ourselves in contrast to what the rest of the industry is offering so we can offer our service in a way that stands out to a specific segment or demographic within that, that marketplace. So that's what we did. And that's the custom post-production or custom editing for wedding and portrait photographers is our current brand position. And so our messaging and our service revolves around that brand position. Awesome. And I, you had touched on, Nathan, how you wanted to give people the opportunity who do think bigger and who do have bigger visions for their business, the opportunity mm. to do that. And mm -hmm. I know for me, that, that was something that I really wanted, you know, I wanted to start this, this coaching branch, but even before that, I just wanted to go mountain biking. I just wanted to have a yeah. life outside of shooting 40 weddings a year. Yep. And so I, I remember so clearly I scheduled all of my orders to be sent to y'all Tuesday morning. And I think at that time they were due by like 10 AM, um, mm -hmm. in, in Mount, mountain standard time. And I would submit it at like 945 because our internet is terrible here. And I would yeah. go out, I would go mountain biking immediately. Like I would be putting my helmet on as I hit like submit. So at the time, I mean, I just wanted some flexibility and freedom and to be able to enjoy the days that I was not working. But then those visions got bigger and I wanted to, I wanted to be shooting more. And so I could shoot more because I wasn't editing. And then I wanted to start this coaching business and I could start that branch of my business. What would you say to somebody who cannot there like the idea of relinquishing that control? Cause I know for me, I like, I had a kind of a big head about my work and that it was so unique and nobody, which it is unique, but the editing is a very, it's, there's nothing crazy about what I do at least. And so once I was able to relinquish that control, I was like, oh my gosh, my whole life just opened up. 
But what would you say to somebody who is just really struggling with the idea of somebody taking over such an intimate role in their business? Because a lot of photographers do view the editing portion as a very intimate process. What would you say to them? Like, how would you talk them off a ledge? Sure. A couple of concepts to consider. One, one is priorities. And we've been going back and forth a little bit about this idea of kind of the bigger picture. What is it that we want out of life? And that's really where we should start, right? Start with our values. Time is obviously a value for you. You want to maximize the time for the sake of adventure and right. you know, excitement and, and probably some relaxation and rest. Time is a value of yours, Taylor. And so you understood that up front and your decisions were informed by that value. So I think mm -hmm. starting first with being super clear on a personal level, obviously, what our values are, those values should also then inform the business model that we create because it will determine the kind of money that we're making and the time, the flexibility that we have within that. So starting with our values, when we talk about priorities, and then I would second to that when we're looking at priorities, our financial goals, mm -hmm. how much money do we want to make? But along with those financial goals, how much time do we want to spend making those that amount of money. I, if I'm making half a million dollars a year, but I'm working 80 hours a week, yeah, kind of defeats the purpose on, on multiple levels, really, right? So I think those three things, values, financial goals, and, and um, time goals need to be considered and let those priorities then determine the decisions we're making about workflow, which helps kind of take the... Well, it changes our perspective, which is really the second point that I want to make as well. If, if we've established our priorities clearly, they act as a, a sort of filter for how we choose to spend our time, what we decide to delegate or to outsource in this case. And it's no longer about how we happen to feel in the moment. It's more about these pre-established values and our goals that determine the decisions made. It's easy for us to obsess over how we feel about, in this case, editing or how our images look or the nuance in that editing process. Our feelings though, need to be informed by facts. A lot of times we obsess over our feelings to the point of detriment because our feelings become fact without this objective kind of check, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> and and we have to get past that point. But I think what will make that easier is establishing those, those priorities first. That will enable us to kind of step away from this obsession over our feelings about the situation. I can't let this go because my client's not going to be happy. Photographers say that and haven't really actually looked at the objective facts around that. And in 98%, 99% of cases, that's not actually accurate. But we, because we think that and we feel that and then we obsess over that, so we feel it even stronger, it just becomes our reality and then we're not willing to give up that thing. So yeah, starting with the priorities, that will inform perspective. And I think that will be really helpful in making the decision to delegate, whatever it is. Right. Oh, that's that was so eloquently said. Great work. <laughs> that <laughs> was you. awesome. Yeah. Um, and I just... I just want to share like my personal experience. And I know that you've heard this story before, but for people who haven't, I was in my second year of shooting and it just, it happened so fast. Like I just wasn't expecting it to happen as fast as it did. But my second year in business, we were shooting, I, I say we, cause Mike and I, my, my husband shoot together. Yeah. We were shooting 40 weddings. We booked 40 weddings or second year in business. Wow. And at that time, Nathan, it was taking me a full 40 hour work week to edit one wedding because I did not yeah. have a good workflow. I was still learning. I was still doing it terribly. I was like editing in Photoshop raw and I had no calling process whatsoever. Sure. And so I was like 13 weddings deep at a Starbucks and I had, 
I had 13 weddings and it was September. So I knew I had like double and triple header weekends coming up. And I was like, there's, there's just no way. And so I was sitting in a Starbucks sobbing and I called photographers at it and like, God bless the, the gal who answered the phone on the other line. Cause I was just, <laughs> I was unconsolable. I was like, I have 13 weddings. Cause I, can I send you all of them? And she was like, yeah, we have a little bit of a process. There might be some back and forth. And I was like, I don't care. I'm sending you all of them. And, um, my whole life changed after that. I mean, mm. like photographers edit gave me this it, it felt like I had a support team, even though you guys were obviously your, you know, your own contract, you've got your own business, but I felt like I had this whole team behind me and that gave, it was so empowering to feel like I got my life and my time back and I could focus on other areas of my business. And since then I've referred you guys to like a million people, but one of my students that I coached just recently And I think that I told you the story as well, but she was kind of in a similar position where she was like, I, I just can't keep up with this. And I said, call photographers at it. Like I've been telling her this for a year. So she finally, (laughs) she finally called you guys or got, you know, got on the list and got her, her images back and said, I think, I think there might be some back and forth. And I was like, just do the back and forth. It's okay. It's part of the process. Right. And then she got back her second round of edits and started sobbing. She was like, they're perfect and they're done. And I don't, I'm not even touching them. I'm exporting them. And you know what I did today? I ate lunch. I cooked myself. <laughs> I cooked myself a meal. And I was like, oh my gosh, like the things that we sacrifice to like right. work because we feel like we're supposed to. And so those are just two of the stories that like I can share from a personal level of what that freedom that you have given back to so many people. There there have been times when I'll submit a wedding and then I'll go take my my boys on an adventure. And like I get to be a present mom because I'm not spending mm all these hours upon hours going cross-eyed trying to edit all my photos. So, and I think one of the services too that you guys have added in that's like amazingly on top of editing, you guys will cull now too. You're, you have a culling process. Can you shed right. a little bit of light on that? Because like, I think for a lot of people, relinquishing the editing control is terrifying, but then the thought of relinquishing culling is like ultra scary. Can you shed a little light on like what like why you brought that into the uh, business model? It's it's really an important part of the post-production process that I've, some photographers have actually told me takes even longer than the color correction process, right? So mm-hmm. it's an option that we've offered for for some time. And there's still a smaller percentage of our clients who are, who are opting to have us do the culling. Part of it may be that apprehension that you're talking about. But what photographers need to keep in mind is that we've first of all, not only been in business for 14 years, but even just in a given year, we'll process millions of images. Oh, I believe so, it. Mm-hmm. With that being said, the, the perspective and the experience that we've developed over time is really, really significant. There are nuanced differences between, you know, from one wedding to the next. But the reality is at the end of the day, much like human beings, the patterns are pretty similar. It's pretty, pretty predictable. Yeah. 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 For the most part. So Anytime there may be some nuance, what I'll recommend to photographers is, hey, go ahead and make a note in the order notes and just give us a heads up that we need to make sure we're keeping the section of images that maybe normally our editors wouldn't pay attention to, but the photographer knows that they're important to this particular situation. And they can just let us know that. Otherwise, generally speaking, if a photographer says, hey, I need this percentage of images cold, or I want this percentage of images of the total number as a final product, then we're going to deliver to a client. So for example, they photograph a thousand images, they want to deliver 400 images. 
that we're going to cull roughly 60%. And then we're going to color correct, custom color correct to match their editing style with the rest. They'll give us that percentage. And then we'll go through, we'll take out the images that are blurry, where eyes are closed, weird expressions, (laughs) maybe poor composition in comparison to another image. Um, Those that are duplicates. There are a few parameters through which we're running this culling process, but we can, our team can actually do a, a really, really great job as long as the, the photographer is giving us any specific instructions that are nuanced to a particular event, for example. Yeah, and I know personally, I have um, I have handed off that responsibility for especially during our super busy season. I'll I'll do half the weddings, I'll call half the weddings, and I'll send off half the weddings to you guys to be called. And it's. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know what I'm missing whenever I look at it. I'm like, there's not a single image that I remember taking that that I'm bummed is not in here. So that is just such a seamless process. So you can literally, I mean, and you guys specialize in weddings, but you also offer portrait and family and engagement shoot editing as well. And you'll even go above and beyond and do retouching, you know, for, for people who need that, that extra. Yeah. There's, there's actually, so I, I think maybe because there are in some, in some instances, maybe more wedding pictures than portrait images on our website, there's a misconception at times that weddings are kind of our primary focus. They're, they are a, a big percentage of our business, but in a, in a given time, say a year, for example, the split is actually relatively similar. So we process almost as many portrait images as we do weddings. Mm. Um, and regardless if it's a portrait session any type of event. We do a little bit of commercial work, even a little bit of real estate work. These images can be processed to match your style. And that's that's what's most important. A photographer is giving up their editing. They're concerned that it's not going to match their style, reflect their brand accurately. That's actually our specialty. We know how to match your editing style as long as you give us a certain bit of information and we walk you through that process. We can match that style. We're good at that. You highlighted something earlier though, Taylor, that I wanted to just kind of go back to yeah. and try to make this relevant, not just for photographers, but I know your podcast is, is for creatives in general. Yeah, And that is that initial process of delegation. It, certainly with photographers, it might be editing or album design, um, but maybe in the case of another creative type, it's delegating the work of you know it, really any administrative work, email management, or social otherwise. media. Yeah. Social media, the marketing efforts. Absolutely. In fact, that's a, that's a really big thing that can be tough to let go as well because you're worried that the voice doesn't match your brand or it doesn't sound like what you would have said. Absolutely. Anything that that we delegate, whether you're managing an internal team or an individual or you're outsourcing or delegating that thing to an external company, there is a process involved. Now, our goal from the company side is to try to make that process as simple and as seamless as possible. But the reality is anytime you're communicating an idea to somebody else who thinks about words differently than you do, Mm -hmm. sees things differently than you do. It takes a little bit of time to have a back and forth and to establish clarity in order to have the best possible working relationship. And that's part of what I think gets in the way a lot of times, certainly with photographers, but in general of the process of delegation for a business owner. They're like, oh my goodness, I have to go through this process of hiring the person, then I got to train them, then I got to communicate with them, then I have to correct them when they do something wrong. And they'll avoid, the business owner will avoid beginning that process because they don't want to have to quote unquote deal with it or deal with the time involved with it. Totally understandable. I understand the happiness. I've been through this process multiple times over. The, the reality is on the flip side of that, that effort, which depending on the situation, like comparatively isn't going to take that long. Right. The benefit on the flip side of that is significant, as you pointed out. 
And if we're willing to just make that initial investment, the, the payoff is huge. It enables us to be able to not only be business owners, but also have a life that goes beyond our computer screen. And it enables us, if we want to, to grow our business even larger and, again, not be overwhelmed in the process. Right. And I'll, I'll be totally honest. The only reason that we hit the six-figure mark as creatives and as photographers was because we started outsourcing. We outsourced yeah. our, our editing. And it took a while for me to be transparent with our couples. But now I say, look, you got a whole team behind you. You've got editors. Like I have a VA. I have two VAs, actually who specialize in different things. I was like, you have a mm. whole team behind you. And we were able to raise our prices because of that. And our turnaround time, Nathan, in our contracts is six to eight weeks. And I don't think any of our couples in the last, since we started working with y'all have waited any longer than four weeks. Usually I try to turn them around in three weeks or yeah. I, I don't turn them around. You guys do. <laughs> but I mean, that has just enhanced our client experience. And if you... I want people to think about like the most successful people that they know either in their field or in the photography world. It's the people who have who have brought on a team or who have outsourced or who have relinquished control of their business. It's not the one man show, the person doing everything and breaking their back and they're burnt out and they don't see their family or they have no passion. It's right. it's not that. And I was I was actually really shocked at how affordable it was to have a custom editor. And mm. I know that that was your goal. And so that mm -hmm. was to me, I mean, I thought, you know, okay, like I think at the time I was charging $2,000 for a wedding, I thought I was going to pay someone at least $800. Mm. And so once I realized how affordable it was, I mean, it was a no brainer, absolutely no brainer. Well, and that's one of the cool things. I mean, and again, it's not just about editing. Anytime we were looking at delegating something, in fact, one of the things I'll recommend to photography business owners and this is applicable certainly to any business owner, if you take and break down, literally list every single thing that you do, not just professionally for your business, but personally as well, every single thing that you do in a day, make a list of those things. Literally from the time you get up to the time you go to bed, you can find either a piece of software or mm -hmm. a service that will do probably 98% of what you do in a day. If yep. you want to give that thing up, if you want to delegate that out, pay somebody else for a service or find a product or a piece of software, that will help you do that thing. We, I mean, in 2022, that's the, the luxury that we live in. And to your point, many of those services are affordable. I mean, the yep. fact that I can spend, you know, whatever it is, six bucks to have somebody deliver a meal to my house <laughs> now, like it, you know, at the click of a button, yep. is kind of wild, really. And that's just one tiny example. There, literally, you could you could Google anything on that list and find a service or a piece of software that would enable you to delegate or at least automate make more efficient some of that workflow. So we should do that, if nothing else, other than to just get part of our life back as business owners. But if again, if we want to scale, if we want to grow, to your point, Taylor, then certainly delegation is required for that. And it's worth the investment, the initial investment of time to make that process happen. Absolutely. So I want to hear, since you've opened this door, what was the first thing that you outsourced in your business, both as a photographer and a CEO? Like, What was the first thing that you were like, I need to relinquish that control? Certainly, I needed help with the accounting side of things as a photographer. Oh, yeah. CPAs and, are worth their weight in gold. Oh, I, <laughs> yeah. And, and that finance, managing finances uh, was just not a strong point for me and was something that I had to continue to, to learn how to take on and learn how to think about. But yeah, to be able to, to give that accounting work over to a CPA, to a firm, super, super important. And then editing really is probably the second thing as a photographer that I was then delegating. And obviously that just took a lot off my plate when it came to managing running my business. As 
as owner of Photographer's Edit and CEO of Photographer's Edit, the, the first two things that I got to kind of hand over to somebody almost immediately because we, I was able to find a partner that would help us do this was the actual editing work. My, you know, my thought was for a period of time, I would do some editing or I'd find some local editors here in Chattanooga. And, and then we would eventually scale up and I would find a company that we could work with so that we could more effectively scale. And fortunately, that happened almost immediately. And not only did they handle the, the editing workflow, but also customer service, helped with customer service. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. So you, you talked about books earlier that, that help you think a little bit better about time management and how to run a business efficiently. One, one of the ones that the books that I read early on is called The 4-Hour Workweek. Oh, yes. I read, that, I read that in, in Iceland, actually. I was like, I got to get my life together. And that was in 2015. Oh. That, or no. Yeah, that was the year that I ended up hiring you guys. Was the year oh, that I read cool. that I read that book. <laughs> well, the, the principles I think some people may be turned off by the the title because it's so grandiose and they think it's not possible. And even Tim Ferriss, who wrote the book, has said since he's like, that was basically tongue in cheek, right? Obviously, the title's great; it's almost clickbait. He brings people in, yeah. But what he's talking about is not literally that you have a four hour work week. It's about working intelligently so that you can maximize the amount of time in your week to do what it is that you want to. Fortunately, as I was reading that, I was already beginning to apply some of these principles. And within the span of three to four years, as owner of Photographer's Edit, as our company was growing pretty significantly, I was literally able to have about a four-hour work week. That's now, incredible. In, hind in hindsight, had I even at that point put 10, 15 hours a week in instead of just four, our company could be two, three X what it is now. But nonetheless, by applying some of these principles, it was possible to have a super, super flexible work week. Uh, which is kind of mind-boggling to think about, especially at the scale that we were growing. But understanding those principles and then leveraging the ideal of de delegation can enable that kind of not only flexibility, but growth as well. You kind of touched on this just a little bit, Nathan. Whenever we do relinquish that control and say that we are only working a four-hour work week, I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs especially have this idea that busy equals successful. And so there's a tendency and my Mike is my, my Mike, my husband, Mike is really great at grounding me and being like, you just handed off like 40 hours worth of editing. Mm. Do not sit in front of this computer. And so that's why I would literally go mountain biking. Cause I knew I would fill that's that cool. time. Do you experience that? Like, like transitioning from working a ton in your own business to a four hour work week. Did you ever have that like itty bitty shitty committee telling you like, Hey, you have to be working or this, or, <laughs> or you're doing something wrong. Like, do you feel like you ever filled that time just for the sake of filling it? Or how, how long did it take to get comfortable with being like, I work four hours a week? Honestly, at that time, I, I didn't feel that way. And I, I was super young as well. So I, I think at the time, part of that was just like driven by selfishness and a lack of perspective. Yeah. And, and, but, you know, on a positive note, it's what I was trying to achieve. I wanted even more flexibility than I had as a photography business owner. And, and I achieved that. It took, oh my goodness, the first two or three years were a bit nightmarish trying to work out logistics and workflow and customer right. service issues and so forth. But it enabled ultimately the freedom and the flexibility that I had that I had worked for, and it happened relatively quickly. So I'm thankful. I'm lucky. Again, in hindsight, I think that I would have had I just applied an additional ten or fifteen hours a week and a little bit better kind of bigger picture perspective. What would have happened with the company would have been maybe even more impressive than than what we've accomplished. So I, now, actually, I'm struggling more with what you're talking about and feeling like I need to be not necessarily busy, 
but I'm working with an amazing team and I feel a certain level of accountability there. And the last thing that I want to be doing is, is sitting back and just being like, Hey, go do this, go do that, go do and this. And have fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I want to lead by example. And so finding a, a healthy balance um, in there is, is really more of a, a challenge for me at the moment than it was back then. So for you, okay. So, so you said a, a couple of times now that photographer's edit could have been three, four times as big as it is for you personally, Nathan, when is enough enough? When are you like, we don't need to be three to four times more bigger, more, more bigger. We don't need to be three to four times bigger. We're, <laughs> we're, we're great where we are. The team is wonderful. Yeah. Everything's a well-oiled machine. When is enough enough for you? That is a really good question. And I think very simply, if, if I were to be able to make an exit, either by selling the company or getting to a place where I had built up a strong enough team and I knew that they could run the company mm-hmm. and I could live comfortably on the money that I had made and saved, that's that's it. I I don't I'm not the guy that needs the fancy cars and the jet and the you know the mansion and and this kind of thing. Really, for me and one of my values, we were talking about values earlier. One of my my biggest values is time as well, and it's time for connection. It's time for mm-hmm. adventure, and certainly for rest. And if I have if I've set myself up financially to have those things comfortably, then that's that's honestly what I need. When I talk about what we could have done, we're a multi-million dollar company. What we could have done could have been even bigger than that. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's not, I wish I had more money as much as it is. I learned from experience that a little bit of balance in the way that I was managing my time would have translated to growth maybe a little bit more quickly, a potential exit. or you know, We can play the what if games all day. Right. I just know that we could have been stronger as a result of different decisions. And so I'm, I'm changing the way that I work based on what I learned from that experience. You remind me so much of Steve Jobs, just for the, for the, for the number one fact is that I don't think I've ever seen you in anything except a black tee. And that's like signature Steve Jobs <laughs> is like, yeah, black tea and Levi's. So yeah, that that's awesome. Just knowing when it, when enough is enough and knowing when, where your threshold is, because your threshold could be completely different, is completely different from somebody else's. So that's, that's awesome. And I, I think it's important though, again, and I know it seems like maybe we're kind of being repetitious here, but we Beating go back to that horse. idea of, of values, the big picture. I, I refer to it as a big picture view. There's a book called Time management from the inside out, Julie Morgenstern, and she says the most successful people in life have a big picture view that enables them to rise above the chaos and maintain perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that sums it up beautifully. You yeah. don't have to break that down. And so I have a certain big picture view, which is made up of values. I have some financial goals and those financial goals aren't even that lofty. I just want to get to a certain place. And as far as a career goes, there are there are a couple of things that I'm doing. I'm, I'm working on continuing to, to build photographers, edit the the best thing that it can be. Um, but then also getting ready to launch another brand. We're not talking a whole lot about it yet, but in the photography space. And there are certain really honestly values that are driving continued work in the entrepreneurial space. I do have certain financial goals as well. But I'm not, I, you know, when I hear about some of these kind of bigger company owners who are offered X number of million dollars and they, re- they turn it down because there's some emotional tie to the business. It's not really what drives it for me. At the end of the day, I have certain values. I want to live those values. Mm -hmm. And if I am able to get to a certain place financially that will enable that even more easily, that's all I need. I'm I'm not looking to try to be the biggest or the richest or otherwise. 
I, I even have an idea for a next career once I have the opportunity potentially <gasps> to make that exit. So, oh, that's exciting. It, it's more about values than than it is the the money. Yeah, I know. For I've actually I recorded one of my first podcasts I ever recorded was about how to be a badass decision maker, and you do that by having your list of what I call anchors for your yeah. life or values and be making decisions gets really easy and way less complicated when they yeah. fall under the umbrella of what you want to do. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, the whole reason that we want to work for ourselves is so that we call the shots, so that we have time on our side so that we make our schedule. And very quickly our business turns into this own beast that is now controlling our schedule, controlling our time. Our time is not our, our own. It belongs to our clients. And so, um, I, I know again, for, for me, hiring photographers edit was like, does this fall under any one of my goals of, you know, retiring early mm. or making mm -hmm. time for play or, and I was like, yes, it falls under like four of these anchors that we have for our life. And this is an absolute no brainer, despite what my ego is telling me about how perfect yes. the editing has to be. I just love that, that you live by that value system that you've created for yourself as well. And, you know, maybe to some that would seem a little bit robotic, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm, I'm in a super, super emotional guy, actually. I'm literally the one, and I'm, I'm 42 years old now, two kids. Um, I'm in a long-term relationship with a, a wonderful woman, but I'm still like, I'll sit on the couch and watch a rom-com and, and break yep. down crying <laughs> at a cheesy scene. I'm a, I'm a ridiculously awesome. emotional person, right? What I've learned to do though is... I mean, I don't want, and I don't want to lose that kind of passion, if you will, the emotion to me, right. that makes life, it helps make life interesting. But I've also realized that if I put too much weight on those feelings, especially in any random given moment, the idea of making decisions based on those feelings and, you know, labeling it, following my passion or following my intuition, I think is that we've given that too much significance and too much weight yeah. in our culture in the last few years. Because your feelings could could shift literally from moment to moment. So the idea we're basing it on feelings is going to have its significant shortcomings. And I've learned that the hard way over the years. So again, I don't want to become robotic. But what I've realized is if I've taken the time and I actually review my values on a sometimes daily basis, maybe two, three times a week, and I'll adjust them and refine them. But if, if I have that as kind of my guiding standard for the way that I live, and what I'm trying to achieve then it does, to your point, help simplify the decision-making process. When we base stuff on feelings, which again, shift so regularly, man, it makes, it makes life so complicated at it's that so point. It's so scattered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So just, it's, it's not about being robotic to be clear. It's just about creating a certain set of values that you're trying to achieve and also goals to go along with that and let everything just kind of run through those values and those goals as a filter and it'll just make that decision-making process easier. And, and I promise you'll come out on the other side a lot better for it because you made decisions for the sake of those goals. And now you'll find yourself getting, even if it's small step by small step, getting closer and closer to reaching those goals all along the way, also feeling super fulfilled because you're living by those values. Right. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. And I know like, I mean, seriously, outsourcing and photographers that has fallen into so many categories that I didn't even realize at the time it was going to fall into like we have two toddler boys mm. and we're we're homeschooling them that was one of our our anchors was to be a yeah. very tight knit family unit i could not freaking homeschool two children 
and edit all the weddings and run a business and have a healthy marriage and still be an, uh, like, you know, a sane individual. Right. And so it, it, it does really simplify the decision-making process. And mm. just to, to echo what you said about emotions, I'm the same. I mean, I will make emotion-based decisions like that, just like at the flip of a, of, of, of a switch, but it does really force you to kind of put it through, through this filter, like you said, or through a lens, not to be like, no pun intended, but put, put it through a, a different lens, a filter, just some, yeah. some way to make sure that you are not running purely off of emotion. It's yeah. That roller coaster. I, I've just, I've experienced so much pain and I know your listeners have two at various stages of their life. It, it's the, you know, when, when you're going down that big hill, it's exciting. And, mm-hmm. and then you're facing the uphill battle on the other side of it because you overreacted or you made a decision just based on your feelings and it had nothing to do with reality. And, and now you're, well, there are different ways to phrase that, that may be colorful, but it's, it, life becomes rough as a result of, of that kind of instinctual or intuitive, I'm using kind of words in quotes here, but, uh, or gut response to the situation. I, I understand the significance of those ideas to a point. But I think if we put too much weight there, it's going to misguide us. So finding a healthy balance um, is good. And I think starting with those guiding values and goals are just, it, it really does simplify life. Since we're like talking about outsourcing, of course, I am a huge advocate of just outsourcing your life in general. Is there anything in your personal life that you like just love to outsource? Like for me, like I just hired a housekeeper this week because again, I have two kids and yes, I can absolutely clean my own house, but I would love to have an extra set of hands. Um, you know, what, what's something outside of business that you're like, love getting this off my plate. Like, so I can just do something else. House cleaning was actually one of those things that, that we delegated for some time. And, uh, I I say we, this is with, with my, my ex, it it was, you know, it was kind of an interesting conversation internally because we're thinking about how we're raising our kids and, uh, the values that we want to teach them and work ethic and taking responsibility. And so the conversation becomes, do we, do we want to have our kids take on some of that responsibility, almost delegate to our kids yeah. the house cleaning? Cause I, I grew up doing that. And I think there's some value in that. Likewise. Yeah. Yeah. But th- on the other side of that, again, was a conversation about, well, if they're not doing that, if somebody else is doing that for us, and instead of this becoming house cleaning time, whatever day of the week or days of the week, we now have an opportunity to just spend time with the kids, like hang out as a family. Isn't that actually a, a better idea? So that was kind of the, the conversation, the thought process behind that. And there was some significant benefit to doing that. I will say accounting still for me, I know that if I really wanted to like dig in and learn the software and and the the tax laws and everything else that goes behind filing my own taxes, I could do that. But, but who wants to learn that in their free time? Uh, I, yeah. So I've been working with an accounting firm for a number of years who I, I told them kind of at the outset, I'm like, look, this is not only not my strength, but it's it's something that just, it causes a bit of anxiety for me, a little you know, stressed. Yeah. And, and so I, I need somebody that's going to kind of handhold me through this stuff and, and help me and kind of get have my back, look for certainly the opportunities to be able to to save as much money possible and, and just handle it for me. And I've literally worked with this accounting firm now for, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years, maybe even longer. It's amazing. And, and it costs a premium, but the, the relief um, that comes from being able to just hand that to them is 
is lovely and certainly worth that premium. So hey, that's another area. I've had people ask me how much my accountant, how, how much we yeah. pay our CPA. And I was like, I don't know. And I don't care. Because yeah. I would pay that woman <laughs> any amount of money that she asked because of sure. like, there, there's like, let people who are in their zone of genius be in their zone of genius and don't try to do everything. I mean, there's no reason I need to go try to learn how to file my own taxes. I hated That's doing true. it when I had a W-2. I certainly don't want to do it now. <laughs> yeah. Take advantage of those opportunities. And, you know, I, I'll add just one additional caveat, which a lot of times we hear, and again, I don't want to make this just about photographers. We're talking to business owners in general, but photographers will say, I focus, I do the things that I enjoy and then outsource the rest. That's kind of the yes. way that they filter their decisions about delegation. And I, I think that works in some cases, but I, I think it still falls short in the bigger picture. I, mm-hmm. I would still recommend and suggest any business owner listening in, that instead of deciding how you spend your time based on what you like, because you know I like watching Netflix. Am, am I going to sit on the couch and watch Netflix for for eight hours? No, that's not a, that's <laughs> not a great decision in light of my values and goals, right? So I don't think that logic works really well for an extended period of time. My suggestion is don't base your decisions about delegation based on what you like and don't like doing. Make your decisions about delegation based on what your goals are, what values you're trying to live on, what your goals are. Come back to that. That's a way better metric to to kind of filter those decisions through. Awesome. Oh my gosh. I want to know, Nathan, what has been one of your favorite failures? Since failures are just simply like life or the universe, if you're woo-woo, pointing you in one direction or another, what's been one of your favorite failures? Uh, I... I <laughs> I, I think I had like thinking about this. It's like favorite failures. I, I never. I'm. I guess I'm. I'm a bit of a perfectionist to say the oh, least. Oh yeah, and, that's, and so, it's hard. And so I, I do. I struggle with making mistakes. Even obviously knowing that I, I have so many shortcomings, it's still hard to make those mistakes. That's and why I love that. this question so much because nobody yeah. likes <laughs> likes them. But the most, the one that I think is most fresh and recent. Um, I, I read a book. And back, this was back in November or December, so just a few months ago. In the book, and I'll, it's called Three Signs of a Miserable Job. And it's weird. There's, there's also <laughs> an alternate title. It's, it's uh, The Truth About Employee Engagement. Very simply, and this is by Patrick uh, Lencioni for anybody who is, who is curious and wants to look it up. But this is a book that I read around the, the first part of the year, right before the first of the year. And it was recommended to me and a mastermind that I'm a part of. And it basically explains how to manage a team more effectively. Hmm. And while I had, especially after this past year, I, I felt like we, we, we did a good job of building an, an internal company culture, despite the fact that a lot of us were, work, were working remotely. So, you know, our, our meetings are on Zoom. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that, especially these days. But this has been the case now, basically, for the, the life of the company. And I while we may have had an okay culture, the thing that I fell short in and the, the so-called failure was that I wasn't being intentional enough in helping each of my immediate team. We actually have a pretty large team extended through production and development and then customer service and marketing and so forth. But my more immediate team, I hadn't done a good job of establishing clear goals for each and every one of them. And it was fascinating, long story short, to see what happened in our company culture and ultimately the performance, the behavior of our team members once 
those goals were clearly established. And by the way, this wasn't just me establishing goals. Mm-hmm. It was, hey, you know what? We need to set certain KPIs, kind of metrics, key metrics that we want to key performance indicators is what that stands for. But uh, these goals that we want to individually reach for, and as long as we're all individually, myself included, reaching for a certain set of goals, if we're doing that collectively, our company is not only going to do well, it's going to do incredibly and over the last three to four months, to see the internal transformation that has happened in our company and company culture, and certainly our, our company, I mean, we were up 75% this year in the first quarter over last year. And there are a number of reasons for that. But what's exciting to see is the, the shift in the way that individually and then collectively as a team, we are approaching our day-to-day work with those key metrics in mind that we're actually reaching for something specific. And funnily enough, it goes back to our our earlier conversation, right? If we know what our goals are, big picture goals are, what it is that we're trying to reach for, it gives us something to run a filter or or filter to run all of our decisions through because we know what we're reaching for. Mm -hmm. Our team knew that, you know, maybe year over year, we were trying to reach 10% or 20, 30% growth, whatever it may have been. That's super general. There's so many different moving parts within that. Now our immediate team has individual, very specific goals to reach for and, that has just, it's not only driven performance individually, but collectively as a team now, it's also, I think, enabling this this kind of bond because we're working together towards something and there's accountability. It's not me having individual conversations with the team members, but we're collectively having conversations about the KPIs, about the metrics. I, it's It's been a really, really cool thing. And I feel like I fell short by not implementing something like this, which embarrassingly is, is quite obvious. It should have been done a long, long, long time ago, but it's making a, an, an immediate difference in our company. So that's the thing. And I'll add one last caveat and stop talking. No, you're um, fine. I know, that, I know that some business owners listening in are sole proprietors. So I know that the idea of delegating work and then setting metrics for your team mm-hmm. may not feel as relevant. What I would do in, in this case, in this context, is to take to heart the significance, again, of the, the goals. Having big picture goals are good, but also setting near-term goals. So for our team, it's Q1, Q2, quarter one, quarter two. Mm-hmm. So the first half of the year, just January through June, they have certain goals that they're trying to reach during that time. Leading up to the end of that first half of the year, we're going to set fresh goals. So going into the second half of the year, Q3, Q4, then we're going to have a new set of goals to reach toward. And then those goals are tied to incentives. So it doesn't just, you know, it's not just something that we put on paper, like let's reach these goals. I want them to benefit from the success that we have as a company. So if they reach those goals, they have incentives tied to reaching those goals or percentages of those goals. And um, I, again, I would, I would do something similar for yourself as a sole proprietor, if, if that's the case. That like, so first kudos to you, because you've, you said photographers been, been running for 14 years to have that honest conversation with yourself of crap, I have not been doing what I thought I was doing. That is not an easy conversation to have with yourself. And I just like commend you for being able to like, let your ego go. Like all of us have to do from time to time and just go, you know what? Like major self-reflection here. This is not working how I thought it was working. Right. Yeah. Well, that's kind of you to say, uh, there's a lot of that stuff going on in my life on an ongoing basis. And actually one of my values is growth. I I do want to continue to get better. It does take setting aside some ego and it's kind of, you know, eating dirt, if you will, uh, from time to time. 
But man, the payoff again on the other side of that has been so good. And the cool thing is I could go to my team and have that, that very conversation, which was, you know what, I, we should have put this in place a long time ago, but I'm so glad that we're doing this. I'm excited to see what you all are. I mean, literally to, to watch them just take this on and run with it has been so cool. And you know, it's just one element of our company, but it's it's been incredible and encouraging to see the the resulting change. So yeah, for sole proprietors, set those near term and then big picture goals for yourself, and and let those drive your day to day decisions, the way you spend your time. And then for those that do have a team, whether it's you know just maybe you have an intern or you have an admin assistant, or maybe you're working with a team of of third party companies, whatever it is, set some of those goals and and work with them and encourage them, and the payoff collectively um, will be quite significant. Yeah. So you've you've mentioned a few books, Nathan, that have been really impactful for you, and we'll put them in the show notes. Is there one that you've read in the last, say, 12 months that has been like a brick to the head or just absolutely like revolutionary for you? I would I would have to reiterate the one that I just mentioned. And I read that, you know, three or four months ago. Actually, I listened to the audiobook. And and for those of you who are curious, it's a really easy listen. It's told in the form of a, a story or a fable. And yet you're oh, able to learn. Yeah, it's it's you're learning. So you're basically listening to a story, but you're learning the principles behind effective management of a team, um, and and how to go about training a team through the story. So it's it's. I wish more books were read or written this way because it was it was so easy to just listen to. But that would be the one. It just made a massive massive impact. One other one, and I think you and I talked about this. I'll just throw this out there as kind of a bonus, but it's very relevant to what we've been talking about, especially with regards to feelings. Again, me being such a feelings guy too, uh, is one called The Untethered Soul oh, by, yes. by Michael Singer. Mm-hmm. And, Michael Singer's story is unbelievable. Oh, it's so Oh cool. my gosh. It's mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I don't want to yeah. give anything away, but that, oh, that it's, man it's amazing. is, uh, he's incredible. Yeah, his biography, his autobiography is is a, a beautiful read. Um, but The Untethered Soul, for anybody who's curious, is, and it, it sounds, the title itself sounds a little woo-woo, I realize, but it does a couple of things. One, it, it helps us understand how to handle our thoughts and feelings, which at times probably feel chaotic, like they're getting out of hand. Um, we get lost in the, you know, this kind of snowball effect almost of feeling something, thinking about something, and then we get fixated on it and we're obsessing over it and we can't get it out of our heads and we're stressed out and it's getting in the way of our personal life and our business life. That's a little more on the dramatic side, but then just on a day-to-day basis too, just this kind of almost internal narration that constantly happens in the background. A super annoying roommate. Yeah. And he does a really great job of kind of creating that picture, painting that picture at the beginning of the book. But what I would encourage everybody listening in to do is, is to to read this book or listen to this book because it will help you understand how to approach separating yourself from that narrative or that narrator, if you will, that voice inside your head that's constantly commenting and essentially driving your your thoughts and feelings to learn how to separate yourself from that and choose how to engage with it. People talk about how they are fill in the blank. You know, I am this personality type. I'm this Enneagram. This is quote unquote who I am. And I think it's a really simplistic and very limiting belief. And one of the things that the, the value propositions, the benefits from this book are learning how to create distinction between that so-called voice inside our head, that narration that constantly goes on and reality, choosing, owning the responsibility and the privilege and the power ultimately to choose how to engage with those thoughts and feelings and choose what to do with them. And the, the cool side benefit to that 
for anybody who's also curious is that if you're interested in meditation in any way, and maybe in the past you're like, oh my word, you know, the idea of sitting with my legs crossed and trying not to think about anything, that sounds ridiculous. I'm not going to do it. But in, in the process of understanding how to engage with these thoughts and feelings, what you ultimately learn how to do is to meditate. Yeah. Uh, because meditation on a very basic level is choosing how to engage with those thoughts and feelings. And, and ultimately what I'll do just as an example is I'll sit and, and I'll see a, if I am sitting and my eyes are closed and I want to spend some time meditating, I'll see a thought in because you're going to think stuff constantly as you're trying to learn how to meditate. But you see the thought, you, you treat that thought or that feeling as an object. Just like, you know, for example, there's a pen here in front of me. I choose to pick this thing up and then I choose to put it down. What Michael talks about in the book is that you can essentially do the same thing with your thoughts, with your feelings. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing once you start to frame your thoughts and your feelings and your interactions with them in that way and making that choice about how to engage with them, not only in how it's empowering just in life in general, but it also enables you to be able to meditate. So you, you see, I, I see the thought coming in and I just essentially see it out the other, the other door of my mind. And I repeat that process. It's an amazing at times, like I'll, I'll literally fall into this kind of deep state where my, my, the alarm that I'll set off for the meditation session will kind of startle me awake, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's a really fascinating thing. So I highly recommend that book. It's life altering just for emotional health. But again, there's a side benefit of learning what it means to meditate as well. I love that. And I, I, I can't remember if it was Michael Singer or somebody else speaking about something very similar, but the, they suggested giving your mind its own name mm. to like help disassociate from those thoughts. And I was like, I would probably name my mind Gunther. That was my food baby. I named my food baby Gunther, but now I'm like, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll name my mind Gunther. Just something that Gunther, I can, that's awesome. some, something that I can yell at. Um, and this is like, I like a super intimate look into my meditation process, but there, um, whenever I was starting out on this journey, you know, we were using the um, headspace app and yeah. he suggests, you know, thinking of it like clouds, your, your thoughts are like clouds or like traffic and watching traffic go by. And whenever we were in Iceland, we went to this sushi bar and mm. they had, they had all this, like all these sushi rolls literally on a conveyor belt that just yes. went all around the restaurant. This was pre-COVID. Yep. And then they'd come back to you. And whenever I meditate, I just think about that sushi bar. I'm like, there go my thoughts. There they go. And they might come back to me, but somebody might pick it up and eat it. So that's how I view my, that's my a thoughts. No, but that's a, <laughs> yeah. Having those, having those pictures that we can relate to a little bit more. Again, I think just in common everyday, certainly American culture anyway, the, the idea of you know, sitting down and trying not to think about something again, oh, it's, awful. Quotes, it, it, that, it's such a, it's such a limited way to think about the idea of meditation. Um, but what's cool is you apply these concepts and literally treat it like the sushi on the conveyor yeah. belt. And you choose whether or not you want to pick that thing up and eat it or to take it in. Or you can choose not to. You have the ability to choose how to engage with that thought or feeling. What's fascinating is you don't have to be sitting and having your eyes closed to theoretically meditate. At mm -hmm. that point, you're literally meditating throughout the day if you're continuing to choose how to engage with those thoughts or feelings. It's a kind of a crazy concept if you've never thought about it that way. But oh my goodness, it's so powerful. It's so freeing. Um, Oh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. Oh my gosh. So I have one more question, Nathan, and I mm. love ending my time um, with, with guests with this question, but when was the last time that you didn't feel good enough? And you may have already, you know, it may have been what you just talked about with kind of re revamping your leadership style um, at Photographer's Edit, but has there been a time recently where you just <laughs> were like, this is, this sucks? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I think I actually think about my relationship with my girlfriend, and um, her name is Jill, by the way. And I, I want to kind of use what we've been talking about as a segue to this, which mm-hmm. is there are times when I don't feel good enough in the context of our relationship not because she's this terrible, horrible person that's telling me that I'm not good enough or even acting that way. It's because I'm putting so much weight on what we were just talking about, my thoughts and feelings, my insecurities, and then projecting that onto the situation. And even recently, I've had to kind of kind of kick myself in the shins almost to, to kind of wake myself up from this ridiculous trance that I'm in where I'm projecting my issues onto her and creating a problem that doesn't exist. So that mm-hmm. sense of not being good enough, where I'm acting in an unhealthy way, codependently, projecting my issues onto her and then feeling not good enough because I'm projecting my own insecurities and issues onto her when from her perspective, nothing's going on. Um, that I know that's probably a little bit deeper or further than, no, than maybe this, you were asking. Oh, are you kidding? I live for deep conversation <laughs> and big, beautiful earrings. Those are the two <laughs> things I live for. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have the earrings. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's, I, I've just been continuing to, to, I guess, adjust my approach to, again, managing my thoughts and my feelings, being able to identify where it has nothing to do with her, anybody else, any relationship for that right. matter, my work relationships or otherwise, that I'm not projecting my issues onto that person. And as a result, not feeling good enough. And as a result, creating these problems that don't need to exist, um, learning how to separate feelings from facts has been a really important lesson for me. I know where my baggage and uh, kind of obsession with not being good enough comes from in my past. Mm-hmm. And I have the ability to choose to give that significance or not. And that is an ongoing learning curve for me, but it's, it's, uh, I guess to answer your question very simply where recently I've, I've also not felt good enough. So I'm, I'm learning how to adjust how I approach that, those types of situations. Yeah. I super appreciate your transparency and vulnerability. I mean, relationships and I would add parenting exacerbates mm. all the thoughts that we have about ourselves. They just mm-hmm. get reflect like mirrored back to us, how we want to see it right, wrong or indifferent. And it's funny how themes start showing up in your life um, right whenever they're supposed to. And this is me getting woo woo, but my, um, my therapist in yoga um, in the books that I read, mm-hmm. they all started talking about this pause and I swear I was like, my, my therapist was talking about it. And then I went to a yoga class and the whole class was dedicated to the pause, the pause in between poses, the pause in between that breath out before you breathe in. And when I bring it into my marriage, especially, or my parenting, that pause right before I'm about to say something stupid or my interpretation of this story that I've already, you know, built up in my head, right, wrong, or indifferent, that pause no matter how awkward or long it is of just waiting a second and going, this is a story I've just told myself, I'll move on now. And then moving on. But taking that pause is so important. And you, you, you really start to like, I don't know, find a finesse with it when you do start meditating and separating yourself. And one of the things that my therapist said to do was like to tell the person who, whoever it is, this is the story I just told myself. Let me know if that's what you had in mind. 
And most of the time, my husband or a friend or a sibling or my kids are like, no, that's not. And I was like, okay, because I was about to run way out of control with that storyline yeah. and start yeah. making it my, my new reality. So, yes. yeah. Yeah, our, I, our, our feelings are not facts. It, it's, uh, and I know there's nuance to this whole conversation, but um, again, being a highly emotional person and, and then also observing a lot of people in the creative space, certainly photographers in the photography industry that put so much weight on, on how we feel mm-hmm. versus again, establishing some baseline values and, and, and just kind of reaching toward those consistently and, and letting those, those feelings kind of, I guess, shunning the significance of, or not giving significance to the feelings that we're, we continue to obsess over. I, I think it's really important. We we're in, we're in this first world culture where things generally speaking, to be clear, um, are very easy. Very easy. You and can, it's, like and it's you faci- said, you can have, you can pay six bucks to have your food delivered to your front door. <laughs> it's, it's wild. Right. And, and you see examples of, yeah, this ease of life all over what was, what's fascinating. And despite of course the sadness associated with COVID, what, one of the things that was quite interesting when the pandemic was at its height was that a lot of drama that had existed in the media and in our culture suddenly dissipated quite significantly. When when there are significant issues or concerns at hand, it's fascinating how a lot of the BS goes away. Yes. Right? So I, I think if we constantly, consistently, not only through accountability and, and really healthy relationships with people, uh, but also through that kind of North star. I know we keep coming back to it, but of, of that value set that we're striving to live and then maybe some goals as well. In addition to that, if we, if we're able to kind of bring ourselves back around to, Hey, you know what? It's not about who I am or the person I'm trying to find. It is this, this is the person I want to be. And this is, and I'm going to figure out the steps it takes to become this person who represents these values. And I'm going to work toward that on a day-to-day basis. And sure, I'm not going to be perfect along the way, if, if I have something now to work toward that, by the way, I hope our values, yours, mine, everybody listening in are not just about us, but they're about how we can make other people's lives better as yeah, well. Yeah. If we're striving towards values that are that, are that they make our lives better, but they make other people's lives better as, re, as a result, then maybe our focus will be a little bit less on these feelings that we give so much significance and more on how not only we can make ourselves better, but also make other people's lives better. Oh my gosh. I just... I appreciate you and your time and what you're doing for our community so much, Nathan. Thank you so much for, for being here and for, again, your just your, your transparency and your story and, and being so willing to share that with us. I can't thank you enough. <laughs> oh, I feel super lucky you invited me on and, and I hope I didn't screw anything up too badly with this being a, a no. female oriented <laughs> podcast, but I seriously, I feel super lucky and shout out to everybody listening in and, and certainly to you primarily, Taylor. Thanks for just being willing to have me on. It's fun to be oh on the gosh, other side right, of, of the I microphone. Know. <laughs> Normally I'm hosting other people. So yeah, I really appreciate it. Yes. This. And I'm, I'm sure that everybody listening has already heard of the Boca podcast, but where do you want people to come and find you, Nathan? The easiest place, honestly, it, honestly, is if you just go to nathanholritz.com. Mm-hmm. So N-A-T-H-A-N and then H-O-L-R-I-T-Z.com. All, all the the brands, the companies, the podcasts that I'm associated with are, are there and you awesome. can link to them from there. You can also reach out to me directly from that site as well. 
Yeah, NathanHolrich.com. That's easy Awesome. Enough. It'll be in the show notes. And I, I personally can't wait to hear what this new big brand business coming out is. I, I, I am going to be like just sitting on the edge of my seat waiting to hear what it is. So congratulations on, on Thank you. all the exciting things. That. Thank you again so much for being here. And we will see you guys in the next episode. Take care.